Let's bow and pray as we prepare here God's Word. Father in heaven, we ask that you would come and, and work in us this morning by the power of your Spirit and through the truth of your Word, that you would humble our minds and hearts to receive your Word, that you would take the seed of your Word and plant it deep within us and bring fruit for your glory. I pray you'd help me to preach faithfully, to preach what is here in your word, that Christ would be exalted. I I thank you for the honor and privilege it is to preach your word to your people, Lord, and I pray that you would help me to preach it with joy in Christ, clearly, in a way that would bring you honor. We ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. What's it like for you to trust God on hard days? You know, when things are going well in life, when things are going well physically, like we're healthy, when things are going well at work and financially, our bank account is in good shape, when you're getting good grades in school, when your friendships seem to be going well, it can be, can kind of feel easy to trust God. We can more readily even say, well, God's blessing us. Things are going well. God's blessing us. You know, if someone drives a a nice Lexus, uh, you might slap a license plate on the front that says, blessed. But it would be odd to put one on a 22-year-old beat-up SUV. That's what I'd drive. If I had blessed on that, people might look, how is that blessed? It looks like your car is about to break down. Is that really the blessed life? Even though all of our modes of transportation are blessing. Maybe we're more readily uh, given to say God is blessing us when things are going the way that we want them to go. But what about on our hard days? Christian, is God blessing you in hard days? If you go through trials or seasons of of suffering, does that mean that God has withdrawn his blessing from your life? While it may be difficult when going through hard seasons to understand how God is at work in our lives, the question is not whether God is at work when things aren't going well in our lives. But rather the question is will we trust him when things aren't going well. One person put it like this, God has determined that his people would not be marked by trouble-free lives, but by, but by how we trust him during good times and bad. Trust in him only during overt blessing is not trusting him at all. Well, as we trace Joseph's story in the book of Genesis, we see that he knew success And he knew suffering. And God was with him the whole time. In Genesis chapter 37, the chapter ended with Joseph being thrown into a pit, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery in a pit. And in today's passage in chapter 39, what we see is we're going from the pit to Potiphar's house in in Egypt. Some, Some pretty good days he faced in an unexpected setting and context. And then we see the story change, and he goes from Potiphar's house to prison. But the constant theme is that God was with him the whole time. God was blessing him in prosperity and in adversity. God was blessing him in success and in a season of suffering. Well, through the story of the life of Joseph, God's people today, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, we too can know that God is at work on our good days and God is at work on our hard days in prosperity and in adversity and whatever success we may know and in whatever suffering we know. The hope we have is that God himself 
is with us. For the people of God in Christ, our confidence is not in changing circumstances, but rather in our unchanging God. Amen? Well, the main idea that I want us to see in Genesis chapter 39 this morning is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this main idea down on your notes page. The main idea is that God is with us in our success and in our suffering. God is with us in our success and in our suffering. If you haven't already done so, turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. The best way for you to stay engaged in this sermon is to open up a copy of the Bible, of God's Word. Uh, If you don't have one with you or if you don't own one, take that Bible right in front of you. And if you turn to page 33 on the Pew Bible, page 33, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 39 this morning. And if you've come this morning, you don't own a Bible, use that Bible this morning and then take that Bible home with you. That's our, our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. And if you want someone here at this church to read the Bible with you, see one of our pastors on the way out or talk to one of our members right around you. We'd love to connect you with someone who could read the Bible with you. Genesis chapter 39, we just heard that read a moment ago. We're going to make our way through the entire passage this morning. A a little bit of context as we consider where we've been in Genesis. You know, the the theme of Joseph's story, which started in Genesis chapter 37 and resumes here in chapter 39, the theme that stands out has to do with the providence of God. God's providence, it's often referred to as his invisible yet powerful hand. It's a hand that cannot be stopped, that always provides for his People. And God's providence, simply put, it means that God is good and God is in control. If he were just one or the other, that wouldn't be good news for us this morning. But because he's good and because he's in control, we can rejoice in a God who is good. He is perfect. He is right in all of his ways. In him there is light and there is no darkness. He's also in control. He's absolutely in control over all of our circumstances. He reigns and he rules this morning. And so we come to him and we submit ourselves by faith to a God who's good and one who owns all things in control. By way of review, we recently looked at the Heidelberg Catechism. And Heidelberg Catechism, question number 27, it dealt with the question, what is the providence of God? And in summary, the way that catechism answers the question, what is the providence of God? It says this, All things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The providence of God shows God's power behind his promises and tells us that all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Well, there's a follow-up question to that question. The next question in the catechism, question number 28, addresses a follow-up question. And why should we study this? What good will it do? That's question 28 in the Heidelberg. Here's the answer to that question. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. It's good for us to study the providence of God. It's good for us to pursue being thankful in whatever prosperity God has given us. It's good for us to seek to be patient in whatever adversity we might presently be going through. Well, in the story of Joseph, we see adversity and prosperity, success, temptation, and suffering. And we see that the Lord was with him 
in all of that. The dear presence of God to cheer and to guide. Well, as we make our way through Genesis chapter 39 today, I want to split this up into three parts. And in the first part, in verses 1 through 6, here's what we see in the first part. God's presence in times of success. The first part there in verses 1 through 6, God's presence in times of success. Now Joseph was in Egypt. He was in a a foreign land away from his family, away from his home, away from the protection of his father Jacob, which was really important to be close to Jacob. Jacob was living in a covenant relationship with God, chosen by God, uh, elected by him as one who would have the blessing of God and the presence of God. And here Joseph was carted off to a foreign land, sold into slavery, betrayed by his brothers. His future seemingly taken away from him. Betrayed. Well, how have you responded when you felt betrayed by friends or family members? Probably tempted towards bitterness anger, resentment, like focusing on, on, the, on the past and thinking about the wrong that was done to you and maybe having a difficult time focusing on the future and walking in hope in the Lord. But we see Jacob here, he had a, a past that was disturbing, but that didn't necessarily determine his future. It seemed like the situation he was in would be mo- the most uncertain time of his life. He was all by himself in a foreign land, in slavery, yet he was not alone. God wasn't absent in his life. And the reality that Moses, the narrator of Genesis, what he keeps hammering home throughout this chapter is the simple truth, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him throughout all of that. Beginning there in verse 2, we read, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, the Hebrew language has a number of different words or names for God. And here in verse 2, Moses uses God's covenant name. You see there, Lord in all capital letters. That's the Hebrew name, Yahweh, often translated into English, Jehovah. This is the personal name of God, God's covenant name. So you could think God of God as like a title, but Lord in all caps, Yahweh is this personal name of God. It's a name that that Moses had revealed from the Lord himself that Moses heard with his own ears. If you trace forward to Exodus, to Exodus chapter 3, God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush and revealed this name to Moses, telling him, I am. That's what the name Yahweh means. It means I am. This personal name of God, it is a powerful name. It is a majestic name. The name I am means simply God is. God exists in and of himself. And what's interesting about what Moses does here in narrating the story, he references the name Lord in all capital letters. You'll see it here in this chapter eight times, eight times in one chapter. And then the rest of the story of Genesis, he only uses it once more. The significance of using it so often in this chapter, I think, is this. He's emphasizing in this chapter, in Joseph's success, in his temptation, and in his suffering, the Lord was with him throughout all of that. It's not like the Lord was with him when he was successful, and then the Lord pulled away in temptation and in suffering. He keeps hammering home the Lord was with him. Now, it's important to know who it was who was with Joseph. 
You know, when you're growing up, middle school, high school, it was good to have a friend that had your back. But it was important to know who it was who had your back. Could they actually have your back in a successful way? That was a pretty important question. You didn't want just anyone having your back. Well, it's good to have someone with you, but think about who it was that Moses is emphasizing was with Joseph, the Lord, Yahweh. The covenant-keeping God was at work and was with Joseph, the Lord. He is the creator. He is sufficient in himself. He had no beginning, and he will have no end. He has always existed. He's absolutely sovereign. He is dependent on nothing and on no one. He does whatever he pleases. He will not suddenly change. He will be who he always has been. This is the one that was with Joseph. This was the Lord, the God most high. He was with Joseph the whole time. And we see in this chapter that the Lord's presence with Joseph, it has an impact. It brings him favor. Look in verses 2 and 3. We see that Moses connects the presence of Yahweh, the Lord, to Joseph's success. In verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now Potiphar, an Egyptian, a pagan, one who did not know the God of Israel, he saw that the God of Israel was with Joseph. And he promoted Joseph to be an overseer in his house. And he put Joseph in charge of all that he had. Not because Joseph proved himself to be a reliable guy and seemed like a loyal worker and Potiphar was just tired of having to do everything himself and wanted to delegate it off to someone else. No, he put him in charge because he saw the presence of Joseph's God was with him. Verse 5, we see that Potiphar was blessed through Joseph. Potiphar himself receiving blessing from God through Joseph. Look at verse 5. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Joseph is blessed and Joseph is a blessing. Now think about that. An Egyptian, one from outside the house of Israel, a pagan, was blessed because of Joseph. It's a glimpse, really, of the fulfillment of the promise we've seen so far. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when God promised to bless the nations through Abraham. Here we see in this chapter, God is blessing Egypt, another nation, through Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. The blessing of the Lord, it was so obvious in Joseph's life that Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And in verse 6, we read, And because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate, which likely referred to his very private affairs. Now, all this blessing in Joseph's life, it may be a bit of a surprising twist to the story of Joseph. I mean, after all, he was sold into slavery, carted off to a foreign land in Egypt. You wouldn't expect for those days to have much about them that were positive. Yet God was with him, and that changed everything. As a result, Joseph became a successful man in the most unlikely place. One author put it like this, God took him from the pit to the penthouse. Now, we should be clear that material blessings are, are good. Sometimes, especially in our 
circles we want to act like because there's some who preach that if you walk by faith, you'll know health, wealth, and prosperity, which isn't true. Just, I mean, read the story of the Bible, read Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see that success and suffering both come from God's providential hand. He's sovereign over all of it. But sometimes we have an adverse reaction to that, and maybe we're afraid to act like material blessings are good things, and that we can actually thank God for them, and we should ask for His wisdom to steward those material blessings well. Material blessings are good. They are gifts from God. It is good to consider the earthly gifts that God has given you. And by the way, in Charlotte, North Carolina, He's given us so many of them. Even if you stack yourself up against your neighbor and don't feel like you have much, you live in Charlotte. We have so much. God has given us so much material blessing. It's good to consider those gifts and to thank God for them. Well, Christian, how often do you thank God for whatever success He's given you. It's a humbling practice to turn and to look at the success in your life for this past week and give credit to God and give glory to Him. You think, well, I worked hard for that. I worked hard on that exam. I worked hard to climb the ladder at Bank of America. Well, yeah, you did, but who gave you the strength to work hard? Who gave you the intellect? Who gave you the physical health to get out of bed? It all comes from God and His hand. It's a good practice for us to regularly turn. If we want to grow as God's thankful people, let's grow in giving thanks. Now, while it's important to be thankful in prosperity and with material prosperity, we need to remember that material blessings are fleeting. Your health, your job, your family, and friends, they are all temporary blessings. We should enjoy God's daily gifts to us, but not presume upon the future. What we've been seeing, though, throughout our time in Genesis is that the greatest blessing in all of creation is knowing God. Knowing God is a blessing that lasts throughout this life and into the next life in eternity. Knowing God is a blessing that lasts through prosperity, temptation, and adversity. So, so what does it mean ultimately to be blessed? Well, to know the presence of God. God's blessing and His presence, they go together. We've been seeing that throughout our study in Genesis that God's presence is His greatest blessing. You know, we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, before sin entered into the world, before Adam and Eve disobeyed God, what was so great about life in the Garden of Eden wasn't just that there was a lot of good organic fruit to eat and there were animals that you could play with and pet like you were living in a zoo and they wouldn't attack you. That would be really cool. We've commented it'd be great if the, in marriage there was never any conflict, that you just perfectly loved one another and you perfectly loved God, right? That's what life in the garden was like. But the greatest part of the garden wasn't all of those gifts, but the presence of the giver. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden after they disobeyed God and rejected His loving authority over them, what they lost was the presence of God. But the good news from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 forward, when God promised to send one who would crush the head of the serpent, there was a plan of redemption that would go throughout the rest of the story of Genesis and the rest of the story of the Bible, a plan that's in effect today through Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection and His ascension up to heaven, reigning at the throne of God. It's a plan to bring the blessing and the presence of God back to people God's created. A new creation, as you will. A new creation being made through faith in Jesus Christ. It tells us the greatest blessing we can know is the presence of God. This spiritual blessing 
It comes to anyone who's repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way to know God. There's no other way to be blessed spiritually. There's no other way to be forgiven of your sins against God. There's no other way to be counted righteous before Him when you will stand before Him on that last day. The only way to know God is through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's through repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Jesus. And His death on the cross is payment for our sin. And His resurrection from the dead to bring us the new life that we need. Righteousness that comes from God. And if you've come today and you don't know Jesus, we are so glad that you're here. We hope you come back next Sunday. We'd love to get more time to get to know you. But let me urge you, let me plead with you to not leave here today without considering what it would look like to put your faith in Jesus today. I wonder what's stopping you. That's a good question to have with one of our members around you. I'll be down here afterwards. I'd love to talk with you more about what it would look like today to get right with God and to know Him by putting your faith in Jesus. Let's consider the second part of this story that we see in verses 7 through 20. The second part, God's presence in temptation. That's what we see in verses 7 through 20. God's presence in temptation. Now, the end of chapter, excuse me, the end of verse 6 actually goes with this section. We see there that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That sounds like what we've previously heard about Sarah and Rebecca. And you might normally consider good looks to be a blessing, but his good looks end up getting him in a difficult situation. He catches the eyes of Potiphar's wife, who then makes sexual advances on him. Now, what we read here, it's not merely a seduction. This is really more of a power move. I mean, consider the situation. She gives a command to Joseph, who is her household slave, in verse 7 saying, lie with me. That's not seduction. That's a command. Now, what would Joseph do? This was wrong. This was adultery, a a sin against God, a serious sin. But he was also a slave. If he didn't obey her, this could mean disaster for him. Look at Joseph's response. I mean, this was an opportunity to either fear a person or to fear God. In verse 8, he responds, or we we see he responded, but he refused. He, he refused this command. He refused to do this evil act. Well, why? Well, first, he states in verse 8 that he does not want to betray Potiphar and all that's been entrusted to him. But while Joseph recognizes this would be an offense against Potiphar, committing adultery with his master's wife, betraying the one who had entrusted his whole household to him, notice that Joseph doesn't merely consider things horizontally. He looks vertically to God. He rightly recognizes that to lie with her would first and foremost be a sin, a wicked act against God. And while Joseph wants to remain loyal to his master, he is primarily concerned about loyalty to God. Look at what he says there at the end of verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It seems as if no one would have known if Joseph would have obeyed this command and given into this temptation. He may even have prospered 
in a worldly sense for obeying something he shouldn't have done. Yet he's more concerned about God. Now keep in mind, Joseph is sitting here speaking about God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob to an Egyptian, telling a, a pagan woman, how can I sin against God? In the very moment that he's turning away from temptation, he's serving as a witness of who God is to a pagan woman. I love that. And we need to consider, brothers and sisters, that that our testimony of holiness, it is a witness to those that are around us. If there are people in your place of work that are surprised to find out you're a Christian, something's wrong. If you're spending time with them day in and day out, and they're surprised to find out you're a Christian because the way you speak and the way you act and the way you treat people doesn't line up with a Christian life, something's wrong with that. You see, our our personal holiness, in fact, our our corporate holiness, it serves as a witness. Well, have you considered how your personal holiness is a witness to those around you? Mom and dad, your personal holiness is a, a witness to your children and your home. Holiness doesn't mean you're perfect. Let's be honest, we all mess up. You may have messed up in the minivan on the way over here this morning. (laughs) We all find ourselves in that. Aren't those the opportune moments to get marital conflict in front of the kids or to get upset at the kids because they're not getting ready fast enough? We will all fall short. But a model of repentance before your kids, uh, excuse me, a model of holiness before your kids is a model of repentance. That you can tell them, I was wrong. I sinned against God and I sinned against you. And would you forgive me for that? Your your model of holiness in the workplace, it's important. How you talk to people, how you treat people, your work ethic, your witness. Friends, turning away from temptation in front of friends and family, it's a witness of holiness. Well, Joseph's refusal, you would think, okay, cool, like he did what's right, now he can move on. But his refusal had no effect on Potiphar's wife. The temptation didn't let up with him refusing. Look there in verse 10, we see that day after day she was tempting him, and day after day he would not listen to her. There was daily pressure. Day after day she was pursuing him for evil, and day after day Joseph refused. Potiphar's wife, she was persistent. And how could Joseph avoid her? He was a slave. His job was there. It's not like, okay, well, I'll just stay away from this lady like, so I don't face this. He was a slave. He was there in her house. He had to be there day after day. And we see in verse 11, one day she finds him there in the house working while no one else is there and again issues the command, lie with me. And the time of refusing was over. It would take greater action. And so he fled. He left. He physically got away. He fled temptation, got out of the house, Yet we see that he left his garment behind. Joseph doesn't do anything wrong. He did what was right. But wrong still gets done to him. Potiphar's wife issues a false accusation against him. She first seeks to convince the men of her household that that Joseph tried to seize her and lie with her. And in verse 14, she says, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. So she's pointing out he is a Hebrew, tapping into ethnic and national tensions to get these men on her side. 
And then she says the same to her husband Potiphar when he arrives. Joseph didn't do anything wrong, but wrong got done to him. And Potiphar threw him in prison. From the pit to the penthouse to the prison. These narratives, they In Genesis, they show us God's faithfulness. That's what we've been seeing time and time again. We've seen in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God's faithfulness to overcome their failures. So we see that God is gracious, that He is faithful to overcome our failures. But we also see here in the story of Joseph the necessity of obedience, that if we're going to walk by faith, there's a necessity of obedience to God's commands. There's a necessity to walk in faithfulness. God's People are shaped to be faithful just as He is faithful. That's part of the evidence that we have faith in Christ, that we walk in obedience to God's commands. God is sovereign, and there is a necessary human response from God's people to turn away from temptation. Now, this story, it's not primarily moral lessons. So, so we don't want to look at, at Genesis and just think, oh, this is a moral lesson about adultery and fleeing sin. It's not primarily what it's about. We see there's a story throughout Genesis tracing the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and God's faithfulness to His promise. But you also have to understand there is a purpose here, a purpose in Moses recording these examples that serve as moral lessons to us. So we should take moral lessons away from this. I think the moral lesson here is be like Joseph. Flee sin. Turn away from temptation. Turn away from sexual immorality. Joseph is an example of faithfulness to God in the midst of temptation. Day after day he was tempted, and day after day he refused. Oh, Christian, how long will you refuse sin before you give in to temptation? There may be times where we face temptation and we refuse, and the temptation will not let up. Where our initial refusal doesn't mean that the temptation is simply going to go away. Where we may pray and, and ask the Lord, lead us not to temptation. And then just an hour into the workday, we face that same temptation. God is sovereign. He's faithful to answer our prayers. But He also provides us with the power to persevere in obeying. You see, for those who are in Christ, we can know that God is with us while we are tempted. We can look at Joseph and look at his story and know that God was with him when he was tempted. And the people of God today who put their faith in Christ, we can know God is with us when we are tempted. The Apostle Paul teaches this in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He teaches that God is with us Christians, those who put their faith in Jesus. He's with us when we face temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 reads, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. You can know this, the temptation you'll face today and tomorrow God has already provided the way of escape. The question is not, will the way of escape be there, but will we take it? Will we persevere in taking it? Will we ask God for His help 
and his wisdom to see that way of escape, to turn away from the temptation, to see it, and by his grace, to take it. Well, fearing God involves fleeing temptation. Again, the Apostle Paul gives the direction in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Simply put, flee from sexual immorality. That's what Joseph did. He fled from sexual immorality. Well, Christian, I wonder what area of sin do you need to flee from today? Is there an area you've been giving yourself over to? Maybe you refused for a while, but you found yourself giving into that temptation. Friends, God's mercies are are new every morning. We come together on Sunday morning reminded of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He got up from the dead on a Sunday morning. We're reminded that all who put our faith in Jesus have been given new life. And can we think of Sunday mornings as an opportunity corporately when we gather, a chance for new beginnings? We'll come in just a moment to take the Lord's Supper. There'll be a prayer of confession in that time. And all of us at that time are confessing, God, we've been unfaithful. We have disobeyed your commands. We have thought and acted and lived in ways we should not have done. And God, we trust only in the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins and for the enduring grace to turn away from sin. Brothers and sisters, we should follow Joseph's example. He recognized that the wickedness he was being tempted toward would be sin against God. Well, how would it make a difference in you fighting temptation today if you recognize more often that your sin is primarily an offense against God? How might that view of God and being more concerned with what He thinks, more concerned about His judgment, how would it make a difference We understand the Psalms 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. God sees and he knows everything. He's there with us. Fearing him is a proper motivation for holiness. Fearing him reminds us sin is never in secret. It's never private. There's never a situation where it's just you and whatever it is that you're looking at that is immoral on your screen. You can clear your Google search history, but God knows it all. He reigns over all of history. He's the one who reigns above all and knows everything. Just because something happens behind closed doors doesn't mean it's private. God is there. Every act, every word, every thought is done before the presence of a holy God. And we should care, brothers and sisters in the Lord, most about what God thinks of our actions and our words and our thoughts. How would it make a difference for you and I if we believed this today? We have assurance and comfort. When we're tempted, God is faithful. He's right there with us. Just turn to Him. Pray to Him. Ask Him. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. His presence guides us. It guards us in every temptation. His presence is there to strengthen us to take the way of escape. God is faithful, and therefore, His people can remain faithful in temptation. Well, the third and final part we see in this chapter in verses 21 through 23 is this, God's presence and suffering. God's presence 
and suffering. Joseph did what was right. He was faithful. How could things go so wrong then? In the face of temptation, he did what was right, but he was wrong, wrongfully accused and wrongfully imprisoned. And his season of prosperity quickly shifted to a season of adversity, from success to suffering, from the head of Potiphar's house to prison. Was his second chance at life gone? Was that over? Are his best days behind him? Well, we have the vantage point of knowing how the story ends. And once again, this isn't the end of Joseph's story. God's hand is at work. Once again, what people intended for evil against Joseph, God will use for good. In verse 21, we see the same phrase from verse 2 repeated, but the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord has been with him in prosperity, and the Lord was with him in adversity. And while he sat in prison, the Lord was still with him. And God's blessing and favor continued. We read, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Everyone could see that the Lord is with Joseph, the God of Israel, with Joseph. In verse 22, we read that the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners that were in the prison. Just as Potiphar had put Joseph completely in charge, so did the prison keeper. And just as Joseph prospered in Potiphar's house, here in the adversity of an Egyptian prison, God's presence brought blessing and success to Joseph. We read in verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with them. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, God didn't spare Joseph from suffering. God did not spare Joseph from injustice. Rather, God was with Joseph through all of it. God was with Joseph as he as he waited. Think about how this story would have comforted the people of Israel. So Moses, the narrator of Genesis, we believe the original audience was the wandering people of Israel. Imagine how this would comfort them. It seems like Moses wanted them to know that just as God had been with Joseph, God is with you. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, he is, he's your God. And if you put your faith in him, if you believe in him, he's with you. And today, the people of God and the church, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, we can find comfort and we can find confidence. This same God, He's with us. He's ultimately shown us His presence, and God has ultimately shown us that He's with us in Jesus. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we read of the glory of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, coming down to earth. We read there that God is with us in Jesus. It says there in Matthew 1.21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. The greatest blessing that God can give it's his presence. And that's what he gave us in Jesus. What greater gift can God give us than what he's already given? His son, Jesus, given his only son to lay his life down, to die 
on the cross for us. For us and for our salvation, Jesus came down to earth. He laid his life down willingly and died on the cross as a payment for sin. He died the death that you and I deserve, taking the judgment that you and I deserve for our sin against God on himself, completely absorbing and satisfying the wrath of God's holy judgment by dying in our place on the cross. He rose from the dead on the third day, and before he ascended into heaven, Jesus promised to always be with his people. He ascended into heaven that his spirit would come down and dwell inside of anyone who would repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. For those who've already put their faith in Jesus, our greatest blessing, the greatest comfort we can know has already been given to us. We know God through Jesus. God is with us, and therefore we can trust Him in prosperity, in temptation, and through adversity. God was with Joseph in his success and in his suffering. But brother and sister in the Lord, this isn't just true for Joseph. It's true for you and me. How would it make a difference in your life today if you believed what Jesus told us in Matthew 28, verse 20? And behold, I am with you in, always, to the end of what? The age. That means until Jesus comes back. Hopefully he comes back soon. But if you die before he comes back, that means that Jesus is with you your rest of your life. And into the next life, you'll know the greatest blessing of his eternal presence and the absence of sin, the absence of temptation, a place where there will be no more fleeing from sin because there won't be sin. There'll be no crying and death. There'll be no cancer. There'll be no mourning of sin. There'll be no need to confess sin. Everything that we've laid hold of by faith in Jesus will then know by sight. It's a long journey. It's hard. The Christian life is difficult. Fighting against sin is hard. It's a hard thing to do. We should be weary of this fight. But brother and sister, don't be weary of doing good. God's with us. His presence is there. May we lean in and trust Him. How much of a difference would it make in your life today? Would it make in your life tomorrow if you believed this promise that Jesus is with you? The question is not whether God is at work when things don't seem to be going well in our lives, but rather the question is, will we trust Him? Brother and sister, our comfort is found in the promise from Christ that wherever we go or whatever we are going through, God's with us. In Christ, God's with us. In Christ, God will never leave us or forsake us. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Let's bow and pray. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our confidence in you. Remind us that our souls belong to you. You are the one who saved our souls through faith in Jesus. You are the one who owns us. You've redeemed us. You've purchased us. You have bought us with the price of your only son. And may we know 
the confidence this morning as your people that you are with us. Whatever success we have, Lord, may we call that to mind today and thank you for it and give you the credit and the glory and the praise. Whatever temptation we're facing, Lord, we pray for your strength to look and to see the way of escape and to take it. And whatever adversity or suffering that we know this morning, Lord, may you give us the patience to trust you in it. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.